fama de los impuestos ya empezó. Ya no, porque Boost Mobile te da gratis un Samsung Galaxy A23 5G cuando te cambias y con el poder de las redes 5G más grandes del país. No más drama, ¿qué será de mí? Cámbiate a Boost y llévate un Samsung Galaxy A23 5G gratis. Oferta por tiempo limitado, solo nuevos clientes disponible en ciertas redes. El servicio 5G no está disponible en todas partes. Un dispositivo por línea excluye impuestos. Aplican restricciones adicionales. Visita una tienda para detalles. Welcome to the global phenomenon, surviving the survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime. And today, you're getting the triad of true crime, the three who probably know this case better than just about anyone else. Of course, as we know by now, Brian Koberger was in court Monday where he chose to stand silent, something that a lot of people hadn't heard about. Uh, so Judge Judge, as he is known, entered a not guilty plea for Koberger and a trial date is now set for October 2nd at 8.30 a.m. Police say that the killer is 28-year-old Brian Christopher Koberger of Pennsylvania. We want to remind everyone that Brian Koberger is presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Best guest still on her way here is Kerry Rawson who heard a knock on the door of her apartment, and when she opened it, an FBI agent informed her that her father had been arrested for murdering 10 people, including two children. It was then that she learned her father was a notorious serial killer known as BTK, a name that he had given himself. Uh, she obviously dealt with all the trauma and uh, wrote a best-selling book about it called A Serial Killer's Daughter, and she was just featured on Dateline's most recent episode about the Moscow murders. The next face you know well, Brian Enton, is News Nation senior national correspondent. He is an Emmy award-winning journalist. Uh, he worked before there at WSVN in Miami, where I worked for a short time. And uh, my wife, for those who don't know, the chief marketing officer, the chief technical officer, worked for a time at News Nation. And that, for full disclosure, is how I got to know Brian, who is a stand-up guy and uh, coming on the show uh, to offer his wisdom. And last but not least, we've got Jennifer Koffendoffer, a career in federal law enforcement spanned over 28 years. It included extensive investigative operational leadership and training experiences as an FBI special agent. In that role, she specialized in gang, narcotics, organized crime, and she too is an analyst for News Nation. So, Quick uh, housekeeping notes, Facebook, Insta, Twitter, please follow us at Podcast STS, Patreon, you can support us as well as YouTube, and the merch store is open. As you all know, I like to start uh, every one of these shows remembering the victims. Uh, oftentimes, uh, they are forgotten when we get to true crime and we talk about all the drama and all the twists and turns, so let us never forget Uh, those young lives lost way too soon. Madison Mogan, 21. Kaylee Gonzalez, 21. Zana Kernodal, 20. And Ethan Chapin, 20. Uh, Brian, to you first. Uh, just obviously you've been on the ground running, doing amazing reporting. Um, what was it like being back in court with him on Monday? Did you notice any changes uh, in the way he was looking or acting? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm a big fan of, of your wife. So <laughs> we <laughs> work together. We're buddies. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I'm still in Moscow, Idaho right now. I'm just in the hotel. It's, it's still kind of early here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was um, weird being back in Moscow. Um, you know, all the, the students are gone for, um, for summer. So it's like really quiet here. I was at the house where the murders happened last night. And it's just, it's always really sad being there. In terms of court, um, Brian Koberger didn't look that different to me. I've seen him two other times in person, one time in Pennsylvania after he was arrested. Um, and then when he made his initial court appearance here in Idaho, um, and he, he didn't look that different to me. Um, you know, he had like sort of like a bulletproof vest or Jennifer could probably explain what that was on underneath his um, orange jumpsuit. So he looks kind of bigger than he actually is. Um, but he sort of had the same demeanor as the other times I, I saw him. He only looked at the gallery like one time where the family is when he walked in and then he just looked straight on at the judge, answered most of the questions very seriously. Um, he seems to understand what's going on. Uh, and, um, you know, there, there weren't really any surprises in terms of the way you looked, at least to me. And uh, Brian, and I'm going to get to Jennifer in just a moment. Again, we're waiting on Kerry Rawson, who hopefully is not having too many technical difficulties. Um, some people had mentioned um, facial tics that he, you know, he was kind of making some weird expressions. Did you happen to catch that at all? Um, so I was sitting behind him. Um, so I only saw his face when he walked in and looked to the side. Of course, I went and watched the video. Yeah, there were some kind of weird like ticks a couple of times. Um, but I didn't read anything too, you know, crazy into it, honestly. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't I don't I didn't think it was like in relation to anything specific that the judge was saying or anything like that. And uh, Jen, welcome back to the show. Um Brian just uh, mentioned uh, a possible vest underneath the jumpsuit. I heard other people say that. A couple of people who had not seen him before said he actually looked smaller in person than they were expecting. But was he uh, probably wearing some sort of protective vest underneath that orange jumpsuit? Well, first, I also want to say thank you so much for having me again. And, uh, yes, he was wearing a vest underneath there, and, and that standard procedure for a case like this look there's a lot of people who um don't like brian koberger because of the charges he is accused of and so for that reason alone there's a lot of um you know angst and, and anger possibly that could be directed for them so or against them so it's just a precaution and uh Brian, are you surprised as Carrie is situating herself there, but are you surprised um, at sort of the relatively quick turnaround with the um, court date? Uh, it's expected, the, the trial is expected to last six weeks. Uh, a lot of people were predicting, um, you know, November possibly, which is uh, when these heinous crimes occurred, but uh, Judge Judge set the trial date for uh, October 2nd. Is, does that seem quick to you? Yeah, I mean, I was surprised because, you know, I thought it was going to be way out. And this is only like a little more than five months away. Um, of course, a lot of that can change. I mean, I think they had to pick a date at this hearing um, and um, they wanted to keep it within the speedy trial uh, time frame. Um, Koberger's attorney did. So, I mean, I think that they could still obviously come back and say we need more time. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's it surprised me that that they would be able to get all the evidence together that quickly if they actually do it. Um, and that's a possibility. I mean, you know, when both sides talked about the date and talked about how long they thought it would take, they sort of had this, inter they, you know, this exchange back and forth. Like they seemed like serious to me, like they were actually planning on that time. So um, it, it'll be interesting if they get everything together that quickly. And maybe that's a strategy of the defense, like to sort of 
put the prosecution in a bit of like chaos mode. Like, you know, you got to get all this together in the next five months. Maybe that's something they think that could benefit them. And uh, just so the audience knows, Brian is actually doing active reporting in Moscow. So he's going to have to probably hop off closer to the bottom of the hour. So I'm going to go a little, a little Brian heavy on the front end. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I'm going to get to Kerry in just a minute. Um, but the clock is now ticking too, Brian, right? Uh, in terms of the state notifying uh, the defendant about, and the judge obviously about whether this is going to be a death penalty case, but the consensus I think is that it will be right. Yeah. So they had 60 days from the time of the hearing on uh, Monday, the state does to decide their, whether they have the intent to seek the death penalty. Um, so I guess I'd be like 58 days now. So the clock is ticking. Um, and we don't really know what they're going to do. I mean, um, Steve Gonzalez, Kaylee's dad, has said that his family, he was on News Nation a couple nights ago and said that his family uh, wants the death penalty. And he said that there are other families, too, in his camp or sort of alluded to that. So, um, you know, it, obviously, it's not like the family's decision totally, but they get to give their input to the prosecution. Um, so it'll be interesting if I was, I were actually working on a story about this today. It'll be interesting. Like if some of the families want it and some of them don't, how the prosecutor will handle that. Um, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's up to the, the prosecution. They could take the family's input, but they, they get to make the decision. And, and I'm glad you made that distinction because it could go down the middle. Uh, there's four victims here. Uh, well, there's six really, but four that are deceased and, uh, Two of those families could say they want it. Uh, two don't. By the way, Brian, do the surviving victims' families have a say uh, in this death penalty uh, decision? Not that I know of. I think it's it's just mainly the victims um, who you know were murdered. Um, but I've been doing some research. Like in Idaho, there's only been three executions since 1977, and one of those people actually like voluntarily like didn't fight his um, his execution. So really only two in a way um so i mean if if they do go the death penalty route it's like such a long road um it doesn't just mean that like you know he's going to get sentenced to death and that's going to happen very quickly like there's appeals every single time pretty much um so i think that's something obviously that the prosecution will talk over with the families that you're you're sort of signing yourself up for kind of a long uh, you know legal battle that could take like decades more court appearances, more, you know, I think that's something that they have to sort of consider. Carrie Rawson, uh, a mom <laughs> as well. How are you? She's racing somewhere. Um, Carrie, um, so in court on Monday, uh, we all know Brian Koberger, um, he, he stood silent, as they say. Um, it's interesting because as far as I know, your father did the same thing, but you weren't even really aware of that till this happened on Monday or you didn't remember it. Tell us about that. If you're not frozen in time and it looks like she is. So we will uh, we will come back to uh, Carrie in just a moment. But um, to you, Jen, um, what you, you were you were interviewed in the Dateline piece on um Friday night, and there were some revelations there. What stood out to you most about uh, that episode once you had a chance to watch it? And I don't think a lot of people realize it, but you were interviewed as a you know a guest on the show, but you, you really didn't see the whole episode till it was over. So what stood out there? I didn't see the episode actually until Monday. So it was interesting, uh, you know, social media sort of lighting up about it. And I was trying to keep track of everything that was going on 
And then finally, at about midnight Monday, I finished it. Uh, but I, certainly what stood out was the piece of information concerning the purchase of the sheath and the knife. Um, the other thing that stood out to me in watching it completed is it was such a great job of presenting what is known from A to Z that anyone could tune in and not know anything about that case and by the end have a good understanding of what uh, purportedly happened. Um, you know, so I thought it was very well done, not because I was in it. I didn't even know what pieces I would be in it, um, but because it was so uh, complete. And um, Brian, back to, um, so the Gonzalez family has definitely been the most outspoken um, of, of the victims' families, I would say. And uh, Steve Gonzalez was both on CNN and News Nation. And on News Nation, uh, he said something to the effect of, you can't just hunt our babies. Uh, you can't come to our state and hurt our people. It's unacceptable. Um, and then on CNN, he talked about this emotion of rage. Um, kind of a two-parter there. In court, um, it was reported that he was really staring down Brian Koberger. Is that true? Was he staring him down? And um, what's the sense you get when you talk to Steve Gonzalez? Are, are, are they a broken family? Um, are, are they in the healing process? Are they, is what he is saying here um, true to form that, you know, they're, they're really coming after Koberger and making sure that all the evidence um, is, is true, accurate, and they, they want to pin him down to this crime? Yeah, I mean, he, they're, they're, first of all, a really, really nice um, family. Um, I've enjoyed, like, getting to know them. They're, they're really nice people. Um, in terms of him staring down, I mean, I had my eyes on the family the whole time. I wouldn't say he was, like, staring down Brian Koberger. I mean, they were all looking at him. You know, it's not like they looked away. I mean, they were, they were watching him during the hearing. Um, you know, it was really um, kind of emotional because um, – because Kaylee's sister, Olivia, had her newborn baby in court. Um, and last time I had interviewed Olivia, she was pregnant. Uh, and so it was kind of a surprise to see her with the baby in court. And she had, I forget what those are they're called, like one of those things where you strap your baby to your chest, um, like almost like a little backpack thing. Yeah. So she came in with the baby strapped to her chest and, and sat there and the baby was sort of like making cooing noises throughout the entire hearing. And I don't know why, like, that's like the one thing I'm still hung up on just because it was a really small courtroom. Like, you know, it's a really small building and the jail is right underneath. Um, and the courtroom only holds like 50 people. So everybody was close to Koberger, you know, no matter where you were sitting. And I was just thinking about her with the baby and the family and sitting near the man accused of murdering uh, their loved one and it was just like this really just intense situation um but sorry back to your question they were all looking at him uh no one really seemed to turn away some of them were crying but again it was just weird because like as they were reading the charges and saying murder and stabbing you could hear olivia's baby like making just those like cute baby noises you know and it, it was just made for like a really strange intense kind of emotional moment um Jennifer, back to you. Um, what did you make while we wait for Carrie to get a better connection? But what did you make of this whole uh, standing silent that he didn't want to enter a plea that Judge Judge ultimately had to do that for him? In your opinion, um, as a former FBI agent, uh, do you believe that's some sort of you know gamesmanship going on that he was talking to Ann Taylor, his uh, attorney, and it was done you know with intent to uh, sort of mess with some people's heads? 
Well, I certainly think it was done intentionally. That wasn't uh, just an on-the-fly movement. I think he told Ann Taylor uh, that he didn't want to enter a plea, and they agreed upon that. Uh, From everything I know, there's two reasons generally. It really doesn't have an impact on anything legally. The two things, uh, the reasons that it's done is either one, because your client tells you, I'm not going to plead, or number two, possibly it can be used to, you know, angle at a mental uh, capacity issue. In Idaho, they don't have that, but they do have it for sentencing. And again, if this, uh, you know, the death penalty gets put on the table, it makes a lot of sense that they would want to wrangle for that, possibly. Um, I've also understood uh, some uh, experts to say that it is really a, a, you know, in your face about the process. Uh, That may or may not be true, but I know it has no impact on the fact that he is officially pled not guilty. And she is in the house. She is is parked and uh, ready to go. So, uh, Carrie, welcome to you. Um, Read your bio, but um, now that I have you, I was asking you, about, uh, and we were just talking about with Jen and Brian, that Brian Koberger chose to stand silent. Um, I was talking to you and looking at some of your uh, tweet threads, and I don't think you realize that your own father had done the same thing. Is this true? No, and I, okay, so I apologize. The ki- <laughs> My oldest's bus, like, did not show up. School's out early here in Florida. The last day of school's tomorrow. Literally, like, like I'm getting texts, like there's no bus. And so that was me. And then I was, yeah. So I apologize. I'm a dad of three. Trust me. I know. Trust yeah. Me. Single, single mom life over here. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. So my dad, uh, stood silent and I wrote about it in my book. I had conversations with my dad back in 2005 after he was arrested. And then I totally forgot about it. And, uh, one of my besties, uh, Rose 901 Lulu on Twitter, she, she, she scooped me, uh, scooped the world on that one Monday. And then I didn't even remember and then forgot to tell media. So that was my bad. Um, so I'm playing catch up here to Rose. Um, yeah. So there's letters in my book where he talks about standing silent. So we had these conversations. He was arrested in February, 2005. And, uh, we knew right away that he was guilty so we were told that night, the FBI called us back and said, hey, your dad's confessing. And I was like, confessing to what? You know, because I still didn't think he, he had done him. And they're like confessing to the murders. And then, and then they said they found stuff in our floorboards. And I'm like, what did you find and where? And they said that they had found treat, like souvenirs from my father. So they found um, driver's license of the victims, jewelry. Um, basically my dad's prized possessions and he had put them under the floorboards in our hallway underneath a cabinet. So we had, we had like a lot, like three bedroom ranch, one, one bathroom house. Can you imagine living in like a 900 square foot house with my father for 20 some years? That was fun. So you got like drawers and there was at the bottom was like this junk drawer that was really heavy and it wasn't something you would pull all the way out. And under there, he had made a false bottom. He had cut into the wood, and that was where he stored his special stash. He did this after sometime in, like, the early 70s, after some of his murders, he had done this. He was really, like, handy carpentery. So 
that's the hallway we wrote out tornadoes and that's where that stuff was. So the FBI, so the FBI pushed, well, the investigators pushed him that first day. They knew he was BTK. He was in, he was like playing games with them for hours. And they said, look, if you're, we know you're BTK, just tell us where your stash is. And then we won't tear up the house for Paula, my mom and the kids. We'll, we'll just, we'll do it very nicely. You got it. You got, that was hit their pressure point with my family and it worked because he didn't want the house torn up. And so he told them where that was and then they didn't, they didn't mess up the house. So anyway, they called me, said, Hey, he's confessing. We found this stuff. I said, what? They told me enough that we, I knew my family knew. So we knew very early on that he was guilty. Um, I guess they just trusted us. I think they knew we weren't going to work with the media so we knew a lot more before the public and the media did. So after that, then we started writing letters, asking my dad to plead guilty, like basically to man up, be responsible and do the right thing for our family, the victims' families, the community. I mean, he had just put the community through hell for like 30 years. So we said man up. And so then you see these conversations where he's saying, hey, I've got these pre-trial hearings coming up. He's warning us. The public defenders were contacting my family. They were very supportive, letting us know what was going on. Um, and then he ended up standing silent. And I don't know exactly why, other than I believe he didn't want to put a not guilty in his voice on record because he was still deciding what he was going to do. And he, he was very like weirdly law abiding in some ways, even though he was committing these horrible crimes. Like Jennifer would say like, he wanted to look very law abiding and it would have bothered him like on his BTK morals to have put in a not guilty. Mm. Uh, and I, I want to get to some of the BTK, uh, BK comparisons and see if there's any, uh, <clears throat> you know, veracity or uh, relevance to that. Again, Brian Anton's going to have to jump off um, in a little while. So I want to get some uh, information from him. Uh, Brian, what was your reaction to the Dateline episode and the fact that uh, if, in fact, it is true, it was a single source, uh, you know, Dateline's got a, a lot of pressure on them to be right. But they said that this knife, this K-Bar knife was purchased by Koberger um, more than a year in advance of the uh, crimes. And he basically traveled from Pennsylvania um, to uh, Pullman Washington. By the way, Cindy Hollenbeck was just on who's from the Moscow Pullman area and shout out to Papa Bear from Moscow. But Brian, what about the uh, revelation that this knife was purchased on Amazon? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, it's obviously it's Dateline, it's NBC News. I'm sure they do their, you know, they have good standards. So I have no reason not to believe their, their source. Um, I enjoyed the episode, especially because Jennifer and Carrie uh were were on it and there was you know some new information and stuff but yeah i mean that, that that was an interesting tidbit i mean one of the things that's frustrating with the gag order with a situation like this is you know when a media outlet um breaks something like that it's really hard to then go and try to confirm it yourself and it, it's just very tricky situation because no one will will talk on the record um but uh but you know i, I enjoyed the episode i thought that was really interesting um there were a few other tidbits that they broke uh, that, that I thought were interesting. What they said about the um, Koberger's sister, um, you know, around, I think it was around Christmas time saying that she was suspicious of him. Um, I found that also interesting and a little bit perplexing just because my conversations with people associated with the family um, haven't really revealed those sort of uh, 
like conversations, but again, it's, it's Dateline. I mean, I have no reason to, you know, not believe what they reported. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed it. And, and Brian, and I'm going to have uh, both Carrie uh, and Jen Wan this is weigh in on this as well. This was brought up and then uh, Fox news just uh, uh, wrote a story about it, con- basically confirming it as well, that Brian Koberger allegedly stalked a female classmate uh, at Washington state university this was months before uh, the murders, uh, even offering to put up um, a camera uh, in her home and then I guess basically mess around with the home. Um, I'm going to get to carry on that because she thinks it's a bit of an escalation. Uh, what, if anything, did that? Yeah, we actually reported that on News Nation. Um, Chris Cuomo did. Uh, it was several months ago. And I guess it, it was, was April, kinda, April it was 20th. April. Yeah, yeah you Carrie reported it a it. month before, before Dayline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we reported it and I was actually back out at his apartment complex yesterday. Uh, it's an associate of his, um, I believe another grad student. She lives um, in one of the buildings kind of behind where he lived. It's a very big complex um, and uh, basically had this home break in and then says that uh, Koberger offered to help her uh, install security cameras at her at her apartment. Um, you confirmed it then, Inton? It, like... No, so I, I, no, I, that wasn't my reporting. I mean, News Nation, oh. News Nation reported it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. But, but yeah, but I didn't actually talk to her myself. That was someone. That was a different person at News Nation. All right. Because just for on the record, I think Fox News is quoting back to Dateline sources. Some outlets do that. Some don't. I'm still a baby, whatever media person here. So some outlets are telling me we we won't cite back to somebody and some will so i don't know if they advance the information like if you go read it i think it's more datelines reporting but basically news nation was reporting but i do believe dateline maybe knew some things before new nation news nation on my timeline um it's a very sticky situation cough and daffer can talk about for somebody like me that's being that has decades of experience of being news and then now making news and then working with news. Um, it's like juggling about 15 balls at one time. So um, hopefully I'm doing a decent job. I try to stick to facts and I push it and will and cough will tell me I push back pretty hard on them. And to, I, I literally told Inton to go back and figure something out. So um, I'm sure I'm getting things wrong though, too. And, you know, doing YouTube from the TV, but I it's hard for me because what Anton was talking about, we were running into all of this, all of us with this gag, it's impossible to confirm. And then everybody protects their sources for good reason. So you have to decide on your own, the credibility of each piece of information. And I'm, I'm literally pushing back on Twitter right now, telling people do not dismiss one outlet or another because of politics or because they ticked you off five years ago. Literally, you've got to take each piece of information and decide your own personal credit, like that credibility of that journalist and that information. And then you have to decide, you know, if you believe it. And it's very complicated right now with this case. Um, you, you ha- like in was saying, you have to trust this outlet that they have reliable sources and then go see if you can fact check it. I mean, right, Coffin Daffer? Like, it's just it's insane. Yeah, I just want—I want to hop in for once. I'm sorry, Jen, real quick, just to say that uh, Carrie is uh, me- messaging me off. We talk a lot during the day, and she's definitely got—and I think Brian will agree—really good reporter instincts for not having uh, been raised as a reporter like Brian and I. And she asks great questions, and she uh, checks it all out. But Jen, uh, 
please respond. No, uh, ditto what Carrie said. I'm not going to restate it because she said it so well. But I will add to that, at least for me as an analyst, um, I'm analyzing that information as it's presented factually. Mm -hmm. In other words, I am not here. I fact check on my own, as you can see on Twitter and things. But I'm called to analyze that information. So as an example, this information, taking the belief that it's true, because I do not think Chris Cuomo and I don't think Dateline are going to jeopardize their reputation by fabricating some information so that they can get the scoop. And this is far too detailed. And it makes a lot of sense from my view in terms of what uh, Brian Koberger, if indeed he is guilty, would be doing. And that is baby steps leading up to this massive murder. You don't just do this massive murder, you do smaller burglaries. And I've said that from before he was ever even found. Whoever did this would have done small burglaries leading up to this crime. Yeah, and I want yeah, to circle back to that for sure. But Brian, to you, um, a sort of a macro picture, uh, what is it like in Moscow today as opposed to when you were there right after the murders? Have they kind of gotten their legs underneath them a little bit? Um, and, and what's the latest with the house? Because uh, I have a lot of uh, you know crime scene investigators, evidence people, uh, experts on here who say it's a huge mistake to tear that house down. Um, but to the first question first, how are the people of Moscow doing uh, today? Yeah, so it's a lot warmer now. So that's a big difference from when I was here last time. It's a real, it's a beautiful area. I mean, I love Moscow. I mean, like, it's sad to be here for this reason, but it's a really, really nice town. It's really, really green right now. It's really quiet because they had graduation. So all the students are home. So, you know, in a college town, it like becomes almost a little bit, feels like a ghost town in some ways. Um, I think there's still, I mean, I, you know, I got to eat, I talked to people, I made friends because I was here for a, like a month the first time. So um, the people that I've talked to, like, I mean, they still think about it all the time. And this is the kind of thing that doesn't happen in a place like this, um, really doesn't happen anywhere that often, thankfully, but especially here. So it's not like they're just going to be able to move on from it. I mean, the house is still standing and it's in a very, it's like up on this hill I mean, you can see it from the campus if you look up on the hill. So, you know, it's a reminder all the time that it's there. Um, of course, the court hearing on Monday and like media from all over the world coming, you know, just sort of like brings everything back to the surface for the people who live here. In terms of the house, um, it's all boarded up now. They've got a fence around it. There's like a weird little security hut outside with the security guard who, who sits in the hut. It looks really weird. It's like this weird blue hut on a trailer right out front. Um, and they were going to tear it down. The landlord gifted it to the university or, you know, donated it to the university. The university intended to tear it down. Um, and now it seems like it's up in the air because some of the families have expressed concern that it might be a bad idea to tear it down, that the jury may want to tour the house. So I'm actually hoping to get some more information on that today from the university. They were waiting for a judge to clarify whether or not it should stay or be torn down. Um, and they, they originally said it was going to be torn down during the semester, which is now passed. So it's kind of, we really don't know like what the plan is right now. And Brian, a lot of people are asking this question and, uh, I know you don't have the answer quite yet, but, uh, what are the chances that, uh, judge, judge, judge is going to allow, uh, cameras into the courtroom and are we going to be able to see this live? Do you think, or will it be 
delayed as was Monday's hearing? I mean, that's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> so it's a different judge from the beginning because it's now been moved to a different uh, court. Um, and so we don't really know. I mean, he he doesn't seem to be a huge fan of the media, like based on the hearing on Monday with the gag order. Um, so I don't know if he'll keep it the way it is where they release the video afterwards or if he'll allow a live stream. He didn't really give an indication. So I, I, I my gut says maybe he's just going to keep it the way that, that it is. Um, but I don't really know what the difference is between live. So if you're going to release it right when it's over in real time to me, like, I don't really see what the difference is. Like, why wouldn't you just live stream it? Um, Carrie Rawson, back to you. Um, sort of neither here nor there as it relates to what we're discussing at this moment. But I was thinking about this. Do you think your father would have been caught, um, when he was, if he didn't taunt, he was taunting the police and taunting the media. Um, I hate to say it, but he was excellent at what he did. And uh, I, was, I had a profiler on the other day who doesn't seem to think that he would have been caught too quickly if it wasn't for his own ego at the time. Yeah. So he initially committed his first crimes um, entering the Otero house in 74 and murdered four. And then he committed um, three more murders Um yeah, in, in the 70s before I was born. My mom was actually pregnant with me um, on his 77, um, Nancy Fox. Then he he had a gap. He said he got busy raising um, my brother and me. He got real busy chasing me because I've always been a handful. So there were like an eight-year gap. So he literally stopped communicating with the police, the games he was playing in the 70s. Um, the night of my first birthday, my they had my birthday party, and then he went out and mailed a letter to the police or the Wichita Eagle, how he was communicating. And that was his last letter. I don't know if something hit him with my, me getting older or I was walking or something. Um, but he, he stopped communicating in 79. Um, and then he, he didn't show back up communicating till 2005. Now he committed three more murders in there, but they didn't have those on him. When they arrested him in 05, they didn't even have the one down the street, Mrs. Hedge or the last one. I actually turned him in on, on Mrs. Hedge the day he was arrested. So they, they didn't have him on those. There was only one communication to a family messing with them, a widow or an 88, 89, somewhere in there. So he, he would have he got away with it for a while if he had not started playing games in 04. There was a 30th anniversary on the Oteros that was aired on TV and he watched it. My dad and my, I mean, my mom and my brother say that my dad watched it. And I, we think that kind of woke him up. And then he realized nobody remembered BTK or hardly did. And so he wanted to be known and the narcissistic psychopath got in there. So he played games with the police and the FBI for like 11 months. I don't know if he didn't think he was going to get caught or he wanted to get caught. Um, if he hadn't played those games, it would have been several more years. I believe, I believe Kopp and Daffer, they would have got him on DNA. Like they got golden state and these other guys, they eventually would because they used my DNA to get him. So they would have eventually got him on familiar DNA. Like, you know, the uploads and then genealogy groups, they would eventually got him. He would be in prison by now, but it would have been several more years. Jen, do you agree with that? Yes, I do agree. You know, interestingly, I lived, uh, five miles from, from Cary, uh, from 1977 through in Wichita until 1988. Wow. So there was not, and I went to the same college and we were in the same criminology program. Yeah. 
as Terry's dad. So BTK is something that, uh, you know, I definitely grew up with. Um, um, so uh, it was it was very real for all the citizens. I agree with Carrie. DNA would have got him, uh, just like it's translated in the Brian Koberger case, interestingly, with the familial DNA. Um, but in any event, yes, he would have been caught. And, um, you know, it was a good thing he was caught because you never know if he would have also continued to reoffend. Jen, were you were you fearful in those years uh, that you, you know, like everyone else? A hundred percent. I mean, those murders took place, as I said, you know, five miles from my house, 10 minutes. Well, Jennifer, you're older than me. So did you know of BTK? Because I didn't know that acronym until 2004 when basically I read it on like online with ABC News. It was becoming news. And I didn't even know for months after he had started his drops. I was living in Michigan. I was pretty sheltered and innocent. Um, but I didn't know that acronym. Did you know of him? We knew. Yes, everybody knew. I well, mean, you were, you're older than me. Yeah, I'm old. And, and that's no, what I caveat it. Plus, I lived very near there and in Wichita. And so it was something that all of us knew about and feared from the standpoint that the media put it out there. People were always looking for clues. Uh, people wanted, you know, individuals to be safe and, and aware. And they did the right thing. And certainly, you know, law enforcement, the Wichita Eagle and Beacon was the newspaper where you could read about it. Cake TV, you know, featured it. So we knew and our parents told us and teachers and, you know, it was discussed because we knew there was a serial killer out there right amongst us. And nobody, as I've always said, you don't fly to, you know, Alaska to commit a crime. It's, it, it's where you work, where you live, where you breathe. Yeah. So did you, you studied my dad then in, in your criminology classes, correct? I wouldn't say studied him. Well, no. I'm at BTK. I, I don't recall that. I recall studying the all serial killers yeah. and how they functioned. And uh, so in other words, there was no class per se on BTK. He was one of the many that we studied. Um, so no, not in, in that way that they did a class particularly on him. Do you, it's interesting to me that usually serial killers hunt for lack of a better word in their home area or an area they know well. Like my dad only committed murders in Wichita, which is a place he knows like the back of his hand. He, he did do stalking and trolling and other breakings and enterings. And we were talking about escalation with Koberger. And I'm sorry, I didn't follow up with that question. But yes, if, if Koberger did commit these burglaries uh, that we're finding or these panty raids, things like that, total escalation. My dad is notoriously known for these things back and in, back into his childhood. He literally was doing breaking and entering and stalking and stealing lingerie by the time he was eight or 10 years old. I mean, he, that is him on record saying that there's got to be this deep past of history in Koberger if he, if he's, if he's guilty and we're just not finding it for some reason. So I'm confused. Why, like, why did Koberger not commit murders at home? Have we just not missed, have we missed them? Or did he have some kind of desire that he needed to be away from home and basically keeping home life safe and protected? And he went very far away out where Bundy was to do what he did. That's, it's, it's just a weird thing. What do you think, Jen? I think we're, I think he may have tried. I, you know, and I know they're looking into this. 
but botched burglaries. Uh, individuals that reported somebody that they saw outside their window lurking and ran off. Um, all of these things, I think, and again, we don't know what law enforcement has, but I can guarantee they have looked through these, all of those reports, and they have some idea. I don't know if they can connect it to him, but if it's in and around where he lived, that's a big indicator and uh, probably won't make the threshold of being brought into court. But uh, there's no way this was his first gig. And we've reported that in, in Pennsylvania, the, um, the authorities there continue to go through cases. Um, to our knowledge, they haven't made any like official connections, but that they've been doing interviews and like this is like an ongoing process going back and looking at unsolved murders and that kind of thing. Yeah, and we need to remember that with the pandemic going on, as far as we know, Koberger, a lot of his classes or maybe his whole master's program was online. There's been some debate about that. Now, one professor told the Daily Mail it was, but then students are reporting being in classes with him and him being in Ramsland's uh, crime lab. She has some special house that's all crazy, like where she trains up forensics and detectives. It's quite a thing at DeSalle's University. And he would have he would have been under her teaching at his last two years uh, bachelors too, but there's a pandemic gap in there and Lord only knows what this uh, man could have been doing, especially if he was online. I mean, could he have been traveling around? I mean, there's people asking about um, an unsolved murder in Georgia and I'm sorry, I don't have the details on that. I'll see if I can get in. We'll, we'll look at it, but people are looking and really we need to look outside of Pennsylvania, but we, but I'm really hoping the FBI has done detailed interviews with his family to find out, okay, we don't even know where this guy was living before Washington. I believe maybe he was living with his parents, but we don't know. So uh, hopefully there's a lot of deep investigation going on um, in what Koberger was going on. Um, and also, I just want to say about his family, it's, it's that is an odd reporting from Dateline that they maybe suspected something, as Anton was saying. Um, it just doesn't seem to track with everything else. I mean, again, that's one of those grains of salt you have to kind of like sort through. And we don't, we don't really have access there. So, you know, the credibility there, honestly, though, if, if, if my family had found anything or suspected anything, honestly, that we would have ran out the door with our lives and gone to the law enforcement. Because the reality is with somebody like me, with a family member, when you find out that your family member is being accused of graphic, horrific murder, you feel like your life is on the line. And so when I was notified the day of his arrest, I went into extreme shock. I was shaking for five days. Somebody should have knocked me out in a mental hospital. Seriously, nobody did. Instead, they put me on planes and flew me home at, like, and, and tried to hide me from the media. We literally were like running away from the media. No offense, Enton. You know, it's just your job. But I'm saying like, I was afraid that my mom had been murdered, that my dad had murdered my grandma right that day. So I have severe PTSD, even though nothing physically happened to me. I'm a severe trauma victim from how I was notified because the FBI, sorry, Jen, did not handle it well in my case. So and, yeah, I, honestly, I wanna... it's just we, we have to support Koberger's family and be in their corner and hope that if they did find something, they, they should have gone to um, law enforcement. And I'm going to get back to Jen on on the um, tentacle to investigation, which I'm sure are far reaching and, and into Pennsylvania and his family. Uh, Brian's got limited time. So uh, Tali and Israel uh, to Brian, uh, by the way, baby doll says Brian and is a doll and uh, Julie Fru in the UK. The best guest. Brian is the goat. 
uh, all the way oh, to the UK. So sweet. <laughs> uh, but Tali says, uh, after all your great coverage of this case from the start, do you think the case is more close to your heart than others? Was it hard for you seeing the families or Brian? And and Brian, and how does this rank? Obviously, you made a big name for yourself with the Gabby Petito case. You covered Lori Vallow Daybell. When this actually goes to trial, uh, where will this stand in terms of the hierarchy of high-profile trials? I mean, they're all, um, you know, people are interested in them all. Like, I don't know if there's really a hierarchy. They're all really sad in different ways. I mean, you know from doing this job, Joel, like, and you, Jen, and the FBI, and Carrie, with what you've been through, like, you kind of have to, like, at least I try, like, 75% of the time to just, like, think of it like work just to get through. And, like, you know, you do your research, and you can't, like, be emotional about it, or you wouldn't be able to do it every day. And then... And then you just have moments where it is like really it just breaks through, you know, like like I said, the baby in court, like for some reason I that was just like a moment for me. Like I can't that was like, you know, that made me emotional, you know. Um, but so you know, in terms of I think the I think they're all sad. I mean, just in different ways. It's you know there's and, no really way to say one is sadder than the other. It's just, you know, it, I think it's like people who follow these cases online and on Twitter and who are like crime, true crime enthusiasts. It's like, you forget that these are real people sometimes until you're like in court and you, you're like feeling that moment, you know? Um, so, you know, that, that's why like when people are, and I, I, people should be critical of the media and like question our sources and all of that. But like for people who actually come out here and like are in the courtroom and meet the families, it's like, you really think that we're going to like go and make up sources or um, I mean, like ha you wouldn't be able to sleep at night. I mean, it'd be, you know, like, so I don't your know. It's easy. Yeah. Yeah. Your credibility would be gone completely out the window with a family like mine. Like early on, there were stories being made up about my DNA or that I had turned in my father. I mean, I did on one case, I gave them some information, but um, there were there were there were a lot of stories that's still out there on the Internet that I walked into a police station and turned into my father. So say you're that reporter doing that. Um, you're never going to work with me. You're never going to get anywhere near me if, if you're putting out that much bull crap, you know. So even now, yeah. 18 years later, people like Inton and his colleagues work hard at, you know, establishing credibility in their jobs, but also stick with victims and are like strong victim advocates and, and the public's not seeing 90% of the work people like Inton or Coffin Daffer are doing. Uh, Coffin Daffer and I have had our rounds over the last months, but literally she's just, she's put up with my nonsense and been really patient and kind, like a kind of like a older sister to me. So like nobody sees that what we're put through every day I mean, this team right here, I literally consider Inton and Coffindaffer a team of mine because we work together pretty closely, quietly, like, and I get really ticked off that people go and bash them because it really makes me mad. So uh, I'm kind of getting kind of loud no, about no it. One, has, that, has anyone ever bashed Brian Enton? The guy's too No, and listen, we should get bashed, though. No, I mean, seriously, like, I mean, like, people should hold us. I've told Carrie this. Like, people should hold us to the fire. And, like, especially when it's, like, sourced information and you're not, you know, I get it. Like, I want people to question us. But, like, the people I work with, like, I'm super paranoid. Like, if I report something that's, like, not, like, that's from a source or something, like, you know, I'm I'm paranoid. Like, I will make sure that that it's right or that, you know, the best of my ability. Yeah. Um, 
just because it's it's not worth losing sleep at night. You know, I mean, it's just it's not. I mean, you know, from Joel when you did it, it's not. It's like that saying, oh. like it's better to be right than first. I mean, yeah, it's just it's, not worth it. You know, it can be high stress too because there's uh, deadlines and there's pressure on Brian, especially to break big stories and keep the machine going and uh it, it gets it gets super stressful but uh anyone who handles it with more grace than brian enton i do not know he does a great job uh, you guys uh, are too nice yeah and i, I always love to, to watch him uh brian one thing that was a little uncomfortable in court and again i know you're too too sweet a guy but let us know when you have to bounce off um the judge 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 had a little trouble pronouncing some of the victims names speaking to taking heat um was that a, was that an awkward moment in court was it uncomfortable for people that he was kind of some people said he was breaking down a little bit emotionally i watched it a bunch of times i didn't see that i just saw that he had a hard time pronouncing the names was it uncomfortable at all in court yeah it was uncomfortable because it wasn't just one time um and i was just like oof you know like you just get that feeling like oh this this isn't like good that he had mispronounced the names and um, the family clearly had like facial expressions and then at, like upset about it. And then when it was over, I saw Olivia Kaylee's sister say to like one of the court workers, you know, that that was disrespectful that he mispronounced the names, which I can totally understand. Um, I mean, you know how it is too, like in this business, like it, you can write them down like phonetically. Like, I mean, there's ways to like, make sure you've said the names right, you know? But at the same time, I interviewed like a long time colleague and friend of the judges yesterday for a story we're working on today and you know i've heard good things about this judge i mean everybody in the community says he's an upstanding guy he probably was nervous um so i mean i hate to like you know be too hard on him for that i wonder though just personally if because he's really taken like a real you know people have been very critical of that on social media and it's been all over the place i wonder if that's going to play into his decision with the cameras um, just personally, is he going to be like, I don't want to deal, you know, deal with this every day kind of thing. I wonder if that's going to, you know, maybe push him towards, you know, not doing the live stream or something. Jen, there's all this conversation about transparency. Do you think there should be cameras in the courtroom? No, no one likes that. And here I am part of the media. I, the, at my end game is always justice for the kids. That's it that there's a fair and lawful process that's followed. And when you have cameras in the courtroom, even though, you know, everybody wants to watch, I want to watch. I, I, it's, I like being in the know and understanding what happened, but my balance is more toward justice. And I think the problem is, uh, you know, sometimes things aren't, uh, they're exacerbated. I'm going to take as an example this situation with the uh, mispronunciation of Haley's name and Ozana's name. And I was thinking, how could that happen? Well, I believe perhaps this judge is probably like an FBI agent. We don't watch media about our cases. I would guess this judge hasn't watched a lot of media. Has he read about it? Perhaps. Um, so maybe he hasn't heard over and over these names. I am not trying to give an excuse. I'm trying to provide a possible explanation. I think on the cameras, the reason he did them on the delay is because if something happens in court, if some, you know, somebody jumps over and, and tries to attack Mr. Koberger or, or, you know, whatever, he wants to be able to say, we're not sending that out. I think that's the reason for the delay. I think that all of this 
blowing up that he's going to know about is definitely, I agree with Brian, is going to deter him more on the side of no camera. And I don't keep the gag. Sorry about that. I uh, yeah, And the judge is, uh, he didn't seem too pleased with the media um, in terms of this gag order. And uh, I believe it's gone as high as the Supreme Court. But uh, Carrie, back to you. Were, were you going to say something? Um, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, you're good. And I totally agree with Koff about the judge because I have a hard time pronouncing things because I'm a reader. And so phonetically, like Brian was saying, if I if I haven't heard it spoken um, and I don't note that in my head or write it down, I will get it wrong just because of my own somewhat disabilities I have in that way. Um, regarding Koberger, if you go back, there's a two minute clip of where he is... The judge is going through the offenses, the victims' names, and he's reading a long number of, I don't know, like whatever law Koberger broke. Sorry, I cough would know that. And you, if you watch the video, it's the camera's right on Koberger and his jaw, he's just mad, like sort of like this, and you can see veins popping. And he, he looks like my dad, like he's just like, I'm like, oh my God, is he going to jump out of this chair and like attack somebody? And, and then he's mouthing like Xana. And then he's annoyed. He's really annoyed with the judge for having to read that number every time. And, and getting, so I don't know, is he annoyed because he got the names wrong? Because like the judge messed up his precious victim, like the, the, he would consider these victims his prize. Or is he annoyed that somebody is just not getting something factually right because it would annoy my father? Or is he annoyed that he has to sit there and listen to the judge and that he's lost all control? Um, I, I, I don't know. Somebody maybe could. We're just going to have to see. But he, I, the, his whole body language was telling me that he was barely in control. He did not want to be there. And um, I, I expect this to, to be an ongoing thing with him. Uh, Jen, you're a professional observer of criminals. Do you see the same thing that Carrie saw? Yes, I do. And and I'll take it one step further. And I know there's been so much made of him standing silent. But this was a chance, whether there was, a, you know, some sort of scheme legally, which I still can't uh, figure out what that would be, because at the end of the day, it's not guilty plea. But he gained control. And I've said this. Can you imagine him listening to a judge say for each count the words, not guilty, not guilty? It's just for somebody if he did indeed do these crimes. This is a way to gain control again and to have somebody else say not guilty on his behalf. Hey, uh, Brian, um, Adam Bluefire, do you think the prosecution has more damning evidence hidden that they're going to surprise release during the trial uh, obviously, they've got to hand over the, their discovery. Uh, that was one of the questions that came up with this secret grand jury. Uh, is that, that, did they have to, um, uh, you know, hand over any kind of exculpatory evidence? But is there still more coming, do you believe? I'm sure, yeah. Because in the probable cause affidavit, it was just the basics of what they needed to make the arrest. And that's all we really have officially. Um, so I think that, it's, it, I mean, Jennifer would know better than me, but... The, to me, what I understand, that's just um, the basics. So mm -hmm. I think there's probably a lot that we, a ton that we don't know. Terabytes. They said they, yeah. they sent like terabytes of data. Somebody said that would be like 23 full length movies or something. Or, yeah, it's 51, like, it's, 51 terabytes. A lot of people attribute that 
possibly to uh, like an Alexa in the house, but we we don't know that yet. Um, but uh, well, cyber, all the cyber stalking and all the warrants. I mean, Jennifer, there were like 70 warrants or something that went out to all of the social media of the girls, Ethan, the survivors, Brian, and then they, they would look at them and they would pull in and they would, they would send out more warrants for like, say, 10 people. All of, all of that cyber records, all of that has to be entered into the record. Um, there's just insane amount of data here. I have, I have a feeling they have a mountain of evidence and Koberger is completely and totally done. I've said that from day one and I'll go on record. I will eat a shoe if he's found not guilty and I'll do it on Joel's show. Um, there we go. And by the way, there haven't been any uh, violent crimes in Moscow since he's been apprehended. Just uh, I'm just saying. But uh, bedtime stories with Bella Lugosi for Brian. Do you think the baby coups, which you've talked about a couple of times, Brian, affected Brian Koberger? I saw a reaction, but I'm on this side of the screen. Did you happen to notice if he noticed it? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he noticed it because you could hear it and you could it was picked up on the audio of the camera, too. I mean, it was like kind of loud. Um, and it was such a small room. So I'm sure he noticed it. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see any like specific reactions to it. Um, but I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure he noticed it. Mm. Bri, now I'm getting nervous because uh, you're being too kind. So again, uh, you've been more than gracious. I want you to stay as long as you would like, but when you have to bounce, I know you have yeah, to Yeah, I'm going to hop off just because I got to put my story together or I'll get in trouble. So, What, um. what are what are you, uh, just a quick hint, what are you working on? What's next? Can so you we're doing a kind of an interesting story today. It's going to be on Elizabeth Vargas' show on News Nation and on Banfield um, about the death penalty, about um, kind of what I was telling you about. Just There's only been three executions since 1977. And then also, like, a lot of people don't think about this, but Idaho is is pretty much an entirely red Republican state. Laytaw County, where this happened, is like a blue dot um, in a sea of red. Um, it's Democrat, mostly. Um, it's a college town. So whether that could have an impact, on, I mean, the prosecutor is a Democrat, whether that could have an impact on, you know, um, why he may want to keep his trial here. Because, you know, typically Democrats are, are more against the death penalty. So a lot of people think that he'll want to move away from here, the trial, but could it actually be in his best interest to keep it in Latah County? So we're kind of looking into that tonight, too. Do me a favor, send our uh, love and thoughts to the uh, people of Moscow. And uh, remember, you're par part of the triad of true crime. So we're going to have to. Yeah, <laughs> I will. Thank you, guys. It was good seeing you guys. I'll All right. good Thanks, Brian. Right. The go. Right, Thank you. Um. So, um, Jen Koffendoffer, I wanted to get back to this, you know, this report that Fox News Digital had um, and shout out. I think it is Mike Ruiz, if I have that right, Carrie. Yep. Um, by the way, we need to get him on the show one of these days. But um, do you think this was an escalation um, if this is, in fact, all accurate and true that uh, he was installing a surveillance camera, offering to help this young woman out and then kind of messing with her apartment after the fact? Yes, I do. And and I also think it's a part of that narcissistic trait of, and I know this sounds odd, but trying to be the knight in shining armor at the same time, you know, having this young woman, uh, you know, ingratiated to him or helping her. Mm -hmm. So it, it's kind of a mix. And I think both were at play. You know what, one um, element that I shared with, with Rue as at Fox News Digital on Monday the reporting that came out of there was the ties to my father, which Coffin Daffer knows well. So um, my father 
uh, of course, I, he escalated, like I said. And then in 73, he lost his job with Cessna. It was a layoff. It was due to like economic issues with fuel and stuff, a crisis, um, energy crisis in the 70s. And uh, so he lost his job and he got really depressed and really low. And so one thing I'm wondering is did Koberger, when Koberger didn't get that Pullman internship, which he would have probably been notified, we think in April, is that what led him to, to buy that K-bar and then drive it across? Was, was he already cyber stalking these girls, Kaylee and Maddie and maybe Santa? Um, I don't, I believe he was targeting Maddie and Kaylee or maybe just Maddie, but was he cyber stalking? We'll know because they look back at their records all the way back to 21. So he could have been cyber stalking them for years, um, long distance. Um, he maybe intentionally tried to go out to Washington with them in mind. We don't know chicken or egg here. So with my father, then he lost his job. He got very depressed. He almost got, he was suicidal. And, and, and he said he, he was idle. He had the devil's hands. He would get bored. And so he, he decided he was breaking and entering more. And then he was thinking what he had been fantasizing and, and, and thinking about murder for decades, a couple decades, you know, on bondage and stuff. And so he, he had this fantasy. And so he, he tried to kidnap a bank teller outside of twin lakes. Jen knows what I'm talking about. Um, there was a big mall there at Twin Lakes in Wichita, and he literally tried to kidnap a woman in a parking lot and put her in his car or her car. Well, good for her. She fought back like a hellcat. That's what my dad would say. He, he would say these women fought like hellcats, and he taught me how to do it, too. So he literally tried to kidnap her while she escaped. So he still had to go in that bank because it was my parents' bank at the time, and he had to disguise himself to go back in that bank. Okay. So he he was doing this two months before he was stalking the Oteros, which he started doing when he was driving my mom to, to work at the veterans hospital. She had been in a real bad accident and broke her back before they were married. She was very scared to drive on ice. So when it was snowy and icy, he would drive her to work. And so he literally, they drove by the Otero house and he said, well, maybe this will work. This will be my project. And so he, he fixated, basically he would he would troll for victims, potential ones, and then he would stalk narrowing down. And so it, there was only like a two month gap between that attempted kidnapping and entering in the Otero house. And then when he entered, he didn't expect Mr. Otero to be home, just like like Koberger didn't, I don't think, believe knew everybody was home or he only wanted to go in for Maddie or maybe Maddie and Kaylee. So my dad walks into the situation. He has no mask on. He walks into a situation with a man there. Um, and it gets, it gets out of control very quickly. And so my dad has to come up with a way to control these people. And it, it was, it did not go. And my dad calls it improvising. Literally my dad had to improvise and find enough uh, materials to, to, to murder these people. Literally that's in my dad's words. So anyway, where I was getting at was after that, he then got a job with ADT installing alarm systems in people's houses because ADT had a boom in business because of my dad's crimes because four people were murdered in the Otero house pretty much unheard of in the Midwest or Wichita all these people wanted alarm systems and ADT needed to hire new people so they hired my dad to basically go prevent my father and so my dad was going to criminal justice classes at night at WSU and working at ADT during the day walking around wearing Mr. Otero's wristwatch in front of everybody and going into their homes, installing these alarm systems, stealing lingerie, stealing petty money, stealing little trinkets, bringing those things home. Sometimes he would like put these things on display. Like I think he had 
um, Joseph Jr. Otero's radio possibly in our house, in his bedroom when I was growing up. I, I don't, I'm not ever going to be able to confirm it, that, but that's, that's the reality of my life and my father's. So I, I have no doubt that if we can actually prove with a police record or an interview or something that Koberger did this to his colleague, um, it fits right in, in Koberger's MO. Absolutely. I, we, just need, we just need to see that facts. And Jen, I want to get back to you about some of the kind of profiling aspects of this for the remaining time. But uh, Catherine Drew has a question for Carrie. Uh, can you ask Carrie how her older sister is doing, followed by this comment? Uh, BK's family must be going through a hell of their own. They are victims, too, in many ways. Uh, how is your older sister? I didn't even know you had one, Carrie. I apologize. And uh, I mean, is the family now asking themselves, should we have seen something? Why didn't we see something, et cetera, et cetera? Um I have one brother. I have an older brother. He's three years older. Uh, he was in the Navy at the time. My dad was arrested serving his country. Um, now he went to WSU on a scholarship um, after that. And now he's working. So he, he leads a private life. Um, and that's, that's the limits of what I can say. And I do, we'll just put it on record that I do my best to protect and wall off the privacy of my family because everybody can deal with this how they want to. And hopefully I know I'm the, the, the loud one over here, but I try really, really hard to wall off and protect all of my family. And I will continue to do that the rest of my life. Um, regarding Koberger's family, absolutely hell. I mean, the, the four victim families, the two survivors, the two survivor families, I've said it, there's seven families here, guys. There's, there's the four victim families, the two survivor families, and Koberger's, okay? My family is the eighth family. There's the seven families that my dad took loved ones from, upended their lives, generational altering, generations, because you're taking lives from people. Now, they don't have children. Now, they don't have children. They don't have careers. They don't, they don't influence the world. So it's generational impacting, and it impacts these communities forever, okay? Moscow, Idaho is not okay. I'm getting backdoor reporting from reporters. It is not okay. People do not want to talk. The sororities and fraternities are not wanting to talk. People are not well. There is a lot of trauma going on, con continually trauma going on here. And for Koberger's family, altered the rest of their life. They probably don't even know if he's guilty. They, they maybe know more. They maybe don't. Okay. As far as we know, they zoomed in to the hearing. It's a very long way to travel for a few minutes. Very expensive. There's no funding for that. You're not, the law enforcement is not going to pay your family to do that. I did not ever travel for my dad's court cases. There is, there is no way in hell I would have been able to handle being, being under that scrutiny with the media and then being there with the families. Do you know what that does to you when you're being told that you're, you're not just your father, but like, that you're somehow responsible for your father, but somehow that my mom was responsible, that I was responsible, that everybody with the last name Raider was responsible. Literally, like I have family members that had to retire from their jobs early to get peace. People that had to move, people that had, like we had to have our medical records sealed because people were gonna dig into all of that. Like still now. And so, Carrie, do you think your dad cares that he affected generations of your family to come with this? When he was arrested in uh, February 
of 05, the first night or so, he wrote a poem called Black Friday. So he was arrested on a Friday. And he wrote a poem where he says that now he realizes that my family, basically what had happened, and that we were basically victims. I'm paraphrasing the poem. But he realized, like, what he had done. So at times early on, and there's times later on after I started speaking up, because he, he sees me on TV. He's read my interviews. He's not allowed my book, but people have sent it to him in piecemeal. So he's probably read most of it. They just send it little pieces in of, of it in. There's times you can get through enough of the sanity that he realizes, and then he gets upset. And he said, in 2015, I realized what I did to my family. But then two months later, he's trying to narcissistic control us and overrun us again. So there's always just this weighing with Koberger. I, I don't know his level of, like, I would assume he's a psychopath. That's where I, I believe if he's guilty of these crimes. But we don't know really what his communications are with his parents and where he's landing. Um, Leslie writes, thank you for sharing such personal accounts, Carrie. We only see what is public and your insight really helps to understand more. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jen, to you, have you given any more thought to a potential target here? And something that stood out to me in the Dateline episode, and I brought this up, is they interviewed a fellow student from DeSales University, a female who said that Brian would stare at her. Uh, she said it was a little, uh, I don't know, you know, it, it, it it was a little off-putting, but she just chalked it up to Brian being Brian. Um, but what I thought was interesting is her name is Madison, and there's a Madison Mogan here. Is there any way that he was targeting a woman named Madison, or is that pure coincidence? Was that to me? Yeah, to you, Jen. Okay, sorry. You, you faded I, out for one second yeah, there. Or, or just in general, have you given more thought to who he was targeting here? Yeah, I've given a lot of thought to this. I mean, just even early on before Brian Koberger was ever arrested, somebody who does a crime like this is enraged. This is a crime of loathing, in my opinion, what you can't have. Mm -hmm. To me, he's an incel. These are my opinions. And it wasn't that her name uh, was Maddie. It had nothing to do with their names, in my opinion. It had to do with what they represented. Beautiful, blonde, vivacious attractive, um, very physically appealing to uh, the eye. All of that just completely encompassed what he felt he couldn't have. And that day he had them. They couldn't say no. He controlled them. And after that, he really owned them. And uh, back to you, Jen. You know, in the Dateline piece, they talk again about uh, Papa Roger, who's this... Uh, <laughs> mythical figure online that was posting things that allegedly <laughs> only the killer would know. Uh, your your take on Papa, obviously, Carrie and you have talked about it quite a bit. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Jennifer is the best rabbit hole partner in life. Like, I literally, it would be my dream to, like, work at the FBI and be a profiler. I would never pass the physical. I would die in, like, 30 seconds. Plus, I'm too old now, but, like, it is... You never a, leave the office. Yeah, no, I, I prefer to work from my couch, but literally, so, right after Idaho 4, Cough called me, and she said, hey, I'm a Kansas girl. We talked for, like, two hours while I was, like, driving around, like, just talking the, you know, 
what there's a word for it, but like we were talking about everything. And then Kauf and I were down in a rabbit hole the whole time before Brian was arrested. And now we rabbit hole Papa Roger and other cases and Kauf's like the the best person and oh god i caused her some grief too but we're good now over over so so uh, by the way papa bear not papa rogers in the house she is a friend of the show and she's in moscow idaho um so special shout out to uh papa bear but what about papa rogers jen papa roger papa roger i think i will never it could be 10 years from now we could be talking about a completely different case and I will show up with a Russian uniform on with my side profile. Um, look, um, Papa Roger from the onset, when I started reading his posts, bothered me. I, I have looked at every post, I think, every post, probably many times. I've tried to disprove that Brian Koberger isn't him. That's my goal right now. And I've been working on it. Unfortunately, every time I think I've figured out that he isn't, it comes back to he is. I'm on the fence. It makes every piece of sense in the world that it is him, not only by what he said. It's not just the sheath comment. The sheath comment is this much. It's this much that really we need to talk about with Papa Roger. Um, it's a lot. Um, but if your question is, do I think Brian Koberger used Papa Roger uh, to communicate with social media about his crime, my needle is way to the right that, yes, it's him. But I'm still at a stop cap because of three things, really three main things. The others I've been able to dispel now. But one is the fact that on the profile, it says her. Mm -hmm. But I'm not convinced that that wasn't done purposefully for multiple reasons. Um, number two, he has a very odd post that he sends to the Indiana. It's an Indiana school board about budgeting. But I'm very close. I shouldn't spend time on this uh, to popping a, a connection there. And we're close. We're close. We, breaking news and popping. Um, but we'll see if it, if you know, for sure. And then the other one was a California, a tweet regarding an individual in California uh, regarding politics, specifically kind of sticking up for the military. That one doesn't strike me near as oddly. It's the budget one. But anyway, the fact that he went off, it went offline completely. Now there's no admin closed down makes all the sense in the world why is it important to the case it's important to the case not not the bread and butter of the case it's important regarding the psychology and the, the psychological profile of brian koberger and believe me if papa rogers was him this will be studied ad nauseum in every uh um, um profiling and college and everything else because he'll be the first one we know of that use social media as opposed to what BTK did writing into uh, various media outsourced. I mean, to me, that's why I'm a little bit sidetracked with it down my rabbit hole. I'm curious. Yeah, can I push? I'm going to push back a little <laughs> just because. So what we're trying to figure out, and I and I both Koth and I were sending out tweets this weekend trying to down those rabbit holes. 
I have not seen a social media post from Papa Roger dated earlier than 1130. So my question then is 1129, the Pullman police tied the Elantra to Koberger. Now I'm getting verbal reports that Papa was in that group starting 1115, but I have no screenshots dated before 1130. So if you are watching the show and you have a Papa Rogers screenshot dated before 1130, please DM it to Jennifer or me or both of us because it would be very helpful. So you do? Did you ask me for that? I don't remember you asking me about that. Okay. So, no, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? We're talking all the time. But I guess the other thing I want to push back with Papa is he's got the bodies wrong. So before we knew before the pca before the arrest he's got the bodies in the wrong places in the wrong rooms and in the wrong positions now would a narcissist do that or would he do it to throw it off i don't know but he had the dog separate no one knew that that the dog was in one room and that well, Kaylee he had them in the same room just uh imposed wrong left to right yeah but didn't steve um kaylee's dad somewhere mid-december mentioned that the girls were in the same room, but I don't think we knew where the dog was. He did mention they were in the same room, but I believe it's, let's look at this one. I think, as I recall, I had this all 100% where I could answer almost any Papa Roger question, but I've let it rest for several mm -hmm. months, and then Dateline brought it all back up because, you know, their sourcing is that it's, it's, it's him. Yeah. By the oh. way, a real quick shout out here to Lauren Malloy. Thank you for all your unique uh, perspectives. Having an advocate, survivor, former FBI agent, media titan all together really does prove best guess. Carm cut out is icing on the cake. Lauren's mother, Lori Malloy, uh, was found uh, dead uh, about 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, she believes it was a murder and she is working on this case. And I, I think Jen would be very interested in it. And her body was exhumed and she's on like day 110-ish or so of waiting for these results to finally find out uh, her mother's fate. And uh, she's you need to get Lauren on. If you, you need to bring Lauren on. She's, she's, she does You need to get Lauren on. Yeah, Lauren, <laughs> you hear that? Carrie saying I got, we've had her on and we'll bring her back on. Um, we will certainly do that. Um, a few more things, uh, Jen Koffendoffer and Carrie Rawson. What about this story? Dateline uh, kind of, threw everyone a curveball with the story of this, uh, I think she's a student, um, who reported to police that she had a suitcase in her car. The suitcase was rummaged through and a pair of panties were left on the passenger side. Um, that doesn't seem to be at, the, at a time when Brian Koberger was actually in that area of the world. Um, Jen, what do you make of that? And does that give the defense uh, sort of a red herring to work with? Well, it depends. Again, he was an online student, as far as we know. I know there is mixed reporting. You know, it's it's crazy. You, it's amazing the people that come out of the woodwork with quote unquote facts. I know you have to get barrage, Carrie. I get barrage, mm -hmm. and yeah, about probably seventy five percent. I can write off the top of my head, it's not all. Uh, and then there's about twenty five percent. I'm like, oh my god, I'm going to have to check into this. Um, but anyway, if he was indeed traveling, then uh, they're going to know. They're going to know if he was there. I think it was in April. And it certainly would fit, again, that type of activity that you would 
do in advance of this. And it was the Alpha Phi house that was just located down the hill. So it makes all the sense in the world. But I'll agree with you, Joel. If it's not connected to him, if he wasn't there at that time, uh, you know, then there's somebody else odd because that woman was extremely believable. I believe it happened to that young woman. And uh, so then, you know, was it a prank or something else? You know, we don't know. Wow. Um, uh, it was March. It was in March of, of 22, just right March. before April. But like Koff says, we don't know if he traveled. I, I, I don't, on record, I don't think it was Koberger. I've been pushing back on it. I pushed back when I was interviewed with Dateline. You don't see that. So you don't always see that pushback. You're not seeing. I sat for three out, two or three hours of tape, hours of B-roll. Coffin Daffer did. You're not seeing a. You're not seeing how the sausage is made here, guys. So, like she said earlier, we are called to be analysts. We are called to try to try to give color commentary and our experts' opinions on what we are experts in. Um, we're doing our best. We're human. There is a massive media churn. There are deadlines. It is a very high pressure job. We are doing the best that we can. And you're not going to see us on an outlet pushing on an outlet pushing back and saying no because it doesn't fit a certain narrative. And that's nobody's outlet's fault. It's just the reality of this world. Uh, Norwegian Blonde, is Carrie gonna write a book? Uh, and then there you go. The chief technical officer just took care of it. Carrie Rawson is the New York Times bestselling author of a serial killer. Uh, killer's daughter followed by this comment carrie would be a fantastic author she's very knowledgeable you're working on a book right carrie i'm working on a second follow-up memoir called breaking free overcoming the trauma of my serial killer father very behind on it i have a very nice publisher that's being very very nice i have other projects in development that'll be announced later i am uh running the media cycle and um running on starbucks and um yeah, it's a little bit crazy, right, Koff? Uh, sorry, I have her muted. Uh, Jen, I wanted to get back to you, actually, on um, three more things I wanted to cover. Uh, the sh the knife sheath at the crime scene, uh, any more thought given to that? Was that um, human error on uh, the suspect's part trying to leave in a hurry, or was that left as a, uh, as a marker um, from the killer? Uh, back to the shoe comment that Carrie made. If that was purposefully left, I'll eat a shoe. Um, this is a huge error on his part. There is no way he wanted to go in and out of there, smooth his glass, not leave a sign, and watch everybody wonder mm -hmm. until he was ready to commit his next crime. No way. In the frenzy of everything, he didn't have it affixed it was either in a pocket or he had it in his uh, waistband and it fell out yeah. and again the fantasy as carrie was talking about when you talk to these individuals when you study them the fantasy is never the reality mm -hmm. and i think that's also why he ended up leaving without trying to take any more victims everything was going wrong he's got a dog barking you know, the fight was on with at least some of the victims. Now Ethan's there, not making his quick rescue. Then he looks over and there's, you know, Dylan Mortensen there. Everything was crashing in. It was time to make the exit. Ted Bundy did it too. And yeah. uh, by, by the way, Papa Bear, who's in Moscow, Judge Judge has heard these names thousands of times. All of us in Moscow have no excuses and he needs to own his own nervousness. 
if that was the case. But uh, you can tell, uh, rightly so, people are sensitive, and uh, maybe he should have been better prepared. But I like to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Who knows? Maybe uh, his wife yelled at him just before. It's happened to me before, Carrie. Yeah, I'm just going to follow up with Coffin Duffer. Um, I think I think the sheaf, like she said, he either carried it in or uh, Maddie or Kaylee pulled it off. It was found next to Maddie. Again, another reason why we think Maddie was maybe the initial target. Um, my working theory is the girls were not sleeping in the same room. My working theory, and this is my opinion only, that Kaylee was in her bed because the bed is still there. There's a photo early on from Fox News. You can see her bed and you can see the covers are unturned. My theory is that Maddie was sleeping alone. We would know, they, investigators will know because where are the phones unless Kaylee carried her phone over. My theory is Kaylee heard him attacking Maddie. He got, she got up, she ran over. She inadvertently locked her locking door be, with the dog leaving him in there. Koberger never saw or touched the dog. Kaylee ran in to try to save Maddie, then saw what was happening. Kaylee, I think, tried to leave. I think he, he stabbed her in her back based on the um, information we have and then threw her on the bed. But that is my working theory and it could very well be wrong. My guess is that all hell broke loose, like Coffin Daffer said. Then he went, he was trying to escape. He ran into Santa. She was walking around with her DoorDash and her TikTok with her headphones on. See the PCA. He ran into her. Then he ran into Ethan. I don't think he probably even knew Ethan was there. Ethan's very big. My guess is it did not go so well for Mr. Koberger. Then he was leaving, trying to get out. Was he injured? Was he was his knife broke? Um, was he scared? Was he? running out of adrenaline he would have been absolutely exhausted from the adrenaline uh, he didn't see dylan if he had seen her she, i don't think she would have survived then he leaves then in the next morning based on the pca you see where he comes back right jen he he comes back with the the, the the cell technology i have a feeling he was coming back to see if Ellie had showed up because he wanted to watch the show. I also wonder if he remembered that he he didn't have that sheath. And I wonder if he thought he was going to go back in that house, but then he decided it was too risky. My God, if he had gone back in that house, would Dylan and um, Bethany still be with us? You, it's not even a question you want to contemplate. Carrie, by the way, look at this. She will eat a, a <laughs> shoe, not a show, but a shoe on Joel's show. I will. Show. I will. Um, I'll get you ketchup and mustard. Uh, Dan Koffendoffer, um, two more quick things. That um, Pullman police stop, the Washington State University stop with uh, Koberger being questioned. Uh, how did he come across to you? Um, he was asking a million questions, and he seems like he'd be a giant pain in the ass if you're his attorney. But what did you make of it? So it's interesting because there's two clips. And I had never seen the Dateline clip, which is different from the clip that was really running through media. And um, it, it struck me that he's not going to plead. <laughs> I mean, here he was pulled over for such a pretty minor infraction, although a very dangerous infraction. Just months ago, somebody did the same thing, you know, how you inched out. And then they went and somebody ran the yellow and they sideswiped them and the car flipped over right six cars ahead of me. So it is an infraction. Uh, I, I couldn't believe people were arguing about that, whether it's an infraction to be in the middle of an intersection like that. But in any regard, I don't think that police officer had any intention. Some people said, oh, he talked her out of it or he talked her out of it. I don't think that was it. I don't think she had any intention. This is a small college town. It was a warning. But to hear him go 
through the imaginations of this is this is what it was. And, and really, I'm from a small town, so we don't even have intersections like this. I didn't know you should do this. And and then he said, oh, did you see that car was going to let me through? Did you see that? And she looks at him and says, no. Uh, he just, he doesn't want to be wrong. He wants to be in control. At the very end, he, he says, you know, very sardonically, oh, so you just wanted me to back up? It's It's so perfect microcosm people may say oh that's making too much out of all this we all try to get out of tickets look at all he went through for his explanation to try to say i did everything right i think it's important too to note how he's treating a woman police officer very disrespectful very narcissistic talking down to her asking her for, to go dig up some uh, some random code Honestly, I think the man has a problem with the judge not reading the code correctly. Like, I think Koberger's got that code of offense that he committed memorized. That that would very much be my father. That would be very offended that somebody had some code wrong of a murder my father committed. That's classic psychopathic narcissism. And honestly, if you go look at those two tapes of when the law enforcement pulled him over on his way to Pennsylvania at Christmas time or, you know, post-college, he is he's scared like he's he's rattled that they're pulled him over and he's like oh yes sir no sir no you know like my dad would do that too so my dad would shift when he was talking to law enforcement and in no sir yes sir you know but then if it was a woman my dad would be all like condescending and mansplaining um carrie did they ever uh, test your father's iq was it is it very high um so there's been testing on him and then people will ask me to get them the testing. And I'm like, good Lord, like there's, there's lines here, people. Um, I would say he's probably reasonably intelligent. Um, I, I would say at least somewhere like 110, 130, somewhere in there, like not genius level. My dad has some learning disabilities with writing, um, um, high griff, high griff, yeah, a writing issue. Uh, my dad was supposed to be left-handed in kindergarten. The teacher reportedly tied his hand behind his back. Literally, that's where his binding and torturing could have come from. So good job, teacher. Um, he was supposed to be left-handed. I'm left-handed. So that that messed up his brain. Like, I, I'm sure it did. I mean, not that it's an excuse, but all of this, all of this factors in. So my father is known for having spelling issues and communication issues, but really he, ha he does just have some learning disabilities. I also have similar ones. It doesn't take away from his intelligence. And uh, final point I wanted to get to, uh, and I'll have Carrie take this first because I think she brought it up actually, but he was denied this. Uh, he applied for a Pullman police internship. Um, I believe he found out that he was not accepted around April 4th of 2022. Carrie, you believe that this is maybe the point where he turned dark. Can you explain that? Yeah. So if we're profiling him and comparing him to my father, we know my, when, when my father was a kid, he basically had what we call nowadays a classic conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder. None of that stuff existed in the 40s and the 50s. My father got no help. Nobody knew, you know. So if, if we're following tracking that along um, with 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 Koberger, like there's with my father, too, we see we see this weighing back and forth where my father said he wanted to be a good guy. He wanted to be a white hat. He was in the military. My dad really probably wanted to be a police officer, wanted to be a detective. He tried 
honestly, I'm not trying to defend my father here, but I'm saying he tried really hard at times to be a good guy and he had the ability to stop. So my father is a rare one like Golden State. He had the ability to stop and not commit murders for several years. He had control over it. And then he said what would happen is the fantasies wouldn't be enough, the bondage, the motel parties, all these things that kind of kept that murdering in check. It was like he was trying to control the murder. He would garden. He would fish. He, he, he would redirect that energy into like stamp collecting because it would, that was better than murder, right? Because he said murder was really difficult and that you would get caught and it was very risky. So he said as long as the fantasies held that in check, it was enough. So when you're talking about dark and light, with my father, he rolled over when he lost a job because he didn't, somebody like my father, he has this outer shell of being very strong and inside there's nothing, there's nothing in there. And so he's literally protecting that inner stuff. So when you're talking about a psychopath, it's, it's not that they don't have feelings. I was just talking to um, a colleague of mine. It's not that these people don't have feeling. It's like they're all feeling. Okay. And, and they don't have a regulation and control over it. And so with Koberger, my theory is he he was denied the internship, denied access to that crime lab that I think he wanted access to. Fox News reported about that, about about body cam footage that the Koberger would have had access to, like live live camera footage of body cams. And I think maybe that's what drove him par possibly to Washington also. And I think when he was denied that job, it's just another step forward. And now he's mad. Now he's angry. And now he's going to buy a knife and he's going to do something with that knife. He's fantasizing about it. So he's fantasizing for however many months that is between April and November. And it builds up. And so then you combine that with stalking and, and it gets so it gets too intense and they have he, they'll, they'll tell you they have to do it or they're going to explode. And then after the murder, they chill. And so it's reported that the colleagues in Washington, his his um, when he was a TA, the students said after the murders, he didn't care and he wasn't grading papers and he was giving everybody A's because he's like chill, right? And so if he hadn't been caught, I would assume we would have already had another mass murder and then then he would be a serial. That's all opinion. Jen, anything you want to add to that real quick? Papa Bear, our sweet community of Moscow is indeed forever impacted. We are still grieving and are hopeful for justice. We deeply feel for all families of the victims, including BKs, carries such an inspiration. By the way, before you get to that answer. I'm sorry, Jen. This is interesting from JC. What about the fact that there's a Moscow in Pennsylvania within 30 miles of the PA family home? Could there be any relation to that as to why he chose his victims in Moscow, Idaho? Uh, any possible crimes there? Um, but back to this uh, turning dark after the police internship. And if you want to um, respond to any of this, Jen. I think he was dark before then, but I agree with Carrie that our, there are points of tipping and um, I think that was a tip point, but I believe that there were several tip points in his life. We see them in his writings, uh, the ones that have definitely been confirmed to uh, be from him, the visual snow, um, all of that, I think, built this person. And I think he was capable of this murder whenever he had the opportunity. Although whenever you have high stress um, going on and the building of fantasies that you can't fulfill, it reaches a high pitch and a tipping point, and that's what happened. Mm. Uh, by the way, the chief technical officer letting us know May 25th, tomorrow is Maddie May Day in honor of Maddie Mogan. Family and friends are asking all to do 
a, a random act of kindness. So that is uh, that is pretty touching. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, they are the triad of true crime. Uh, Jennifer Koffendoffer, by the way, special, special shout out to Brian Enton for coming on today. He is News Nation's senior national correspondent and Emmy Award winning journalist and all around great guy, a friend of the chief technical officer and uh, just a great reporter. And we hope to have him back as part of this triad of true crime. Uh, Jen Koffendoffer, she spent uh, close to 30 years in the FBI and law enforcement, um, and she specialized in gangs, narcotics, organized crime all sorts of uh, stuff along those lines. Um, Jen, we're going to have two court dates in June. Anything you're looking for there and uh, what's up next with this case? Uh, what are you expecting? Well, I certainly expect uh, that the gag order will be uh, enforced by this judge. And then I think that the media outlets and the Goncalves family will move that up uh, to the Superior Court of Idaho. I should say move it back. The big thing, the big mistake they made in trying to get an answer quick, they skipped the vice president and went straight to the, the, the president. You never do that. You follow in the FBI and ever, in anything governmental, you never skip your boss and go to the higher ups. So they're learning a tough lesson there. Um, uh, in terms of the discovery, I think, you know, he's going to have to make some decisions about uh, the personal backgrounds of the scientists that would present some of that DNA um, and the fact that they're probably not even going to use, they don't need to, the familial um, link anymore. They have his DNA. So there's a lot that I, that I think that the defense is asking for um, that is just not going to be provided. We'll see what this judge says. Um, but I think the government has provided what they have. Mm. Uh, always terabytes of it. Yeah, exactly. 51 terabytes. Always uh, awesome to have the cough on Jennifer Koffendoffer, uh, and of course, Carrie Rawson, who I am proud to call a friend. Uh, she is so much more than just BTK's daughter. She is a best-selling author of A Serial Killer's Daughter. She's also a dogged reporter, um, and she <laughs> takes no crap from anyone, but she mm -hmm. is uh, getting to the bottom of all of this. Uh, Carrie, what are you looking for next in this uh, long, twisting road? That is the Brian Koberger case and, of course, uh, those four innocent victims out of uh, Moscow, Idaho. Well, I know I know Taylor's going to be tough, tough as nails. She's a tough public defender. I mean, Koberger needs one, needs a team. So she's just doing her job. She gets knocked, but she's doing her job. Uh, she's asking for discovery. So she's she's been asking for a motion of compels to discovery. She's on her third one. That's coming up in June. Um, I'm not real good with the legalese. I'm learning. Um, and then she's asking for all the information that is accessible to her from the grand jury. Now, the public's not going to see that. That's going to be sealed behind its seals. But she has every right to that information. Um, that's just a sort of a procedural process. I still sort of just hold out about 5% thinking maybe Koberger will plead just because he doesn't want to die under the death penalty. Um, these guys oddly will murder, but they do not want to die. It's like my father's greatest fear is to be dead. So I think there's about a 5% chance he'll bargain. Uh, I think that's the only play the, PA, the, the DA has is to bargain for the death penalty. But if the families are really asking for it, um, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, expect a trial. I don't know if it'll be as early as in the fall. That just seems early. Uh, I guess 
from the victim's side, all of these families, the seven families, they got to dig in, take it day by day, hour by hour. They need to normalize. They need to get into trauma therapy now. They need to build support systems. People need to rally around all seven families and leave them alone, leave their privacy alone if that's what they're asking for or give them a platform if that's what they want. Um, and then it's just digging in and taking things a day at a time and being in communication with law enforcement, defense attorneys, DAs, uh, your your own family uh, defendant, family member. It's, it's, it's just taking things a little tiny bit at a time, eye on, eye on the, um, the ball, right? The, the, the ball here is justice for these, 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 these kids. That's, that's the ball. So just, just focus in and do that. And then try to live life as you can around all of this insanity. Uh, well said, uh, take time out for yourselves, everyone really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Maribeth. Thank you for another amazing episode. If you love the show, um, please uh, tweet out the link or uh, post on Instagram. The best thing you can do is uh, tell a friend. We would be very appreciative if you did that. Um, we will be back tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, I'm not going to tell you what the show is yet because I don't quite know, but I'll let you know as soon as I know. We've had a couple of uh, snafus about tomorrow night, but we are getting to the bottom of it. Um, until then. Love you, America. Love you, Moscow, Idaho. Love you, Australia, Canada, the UK, and everyone in between, far and near. Until the next time. El drama de los impuestos ya empezó. Ya no, porque Boost Mobile te da gratis un Samsung Galaxy A23 5G cuando te cambias y con el poder de las redes 5G más grandes del país. No más drama, ¿qué será de mí? Cámbiate a Boost y llévate un Samsung Galaxy A23 5G gratis. Oferta por tiempo limitado, solo nuevos clientes, disponible en ciertas redes. El servicio 5G no está disponible en todas partes. Un dispositivo por línea excluye impuestos, aplican restricciones adicionales. Visita una tienda para detalles. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and... The chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks 
to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.